It takes a village to make a preservation project a reality. And in today's complex financial environment, it also takes an expert in tax credit law to take a project from idea to completion. Today's guest, Bill McCrosty, is one of the nation's leading experts in that complex but critical field. So sharpen your pencil and grab your calculator because we're talking the dollars and cents of preservation on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we're joined in studio by Bill McCrosty. In private practice for more than 30 years, Bill has advised clients nationwide on projects ranging in size and type from a multi-phased $175 million mixed-use project in Detroit to a $1.5 million hotel rehabilitation in California. A veteran of the National Park Service's Technical Preservation Services Division, Bill is now a senior partner at McCrosty Historic Advisors, where he advises clients on historic rehab tax credit design and regulatory issues. In addition, he also serves on the board of directors of the National Housing and Rehabilitation Association and previously served on the board of Preservation Action. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. It is great to be here, Nick. Thank you. Well, um, we were talking before that you are a Maryland resident, so we appreciate you making the trip up from the D.C. burbs here to Baltimore City. All the way to Baltimore. That's That's exactly right. Um, So... You've you've worked in a lot of different aspects of preservation, have seen a lot of different projects, and I'm excited to talk to you about the work that you do at your firm and um, how those projects come together and sort of take us through the complex world of tax credits and regulatory review. Um, but how did you get your start? What was your what was your path to preservation? I was a history major in college, and I had a major advisor at uh, Lewis and Clark College in, out in Portland, Oregon, where I went to undergrad, who was determined to have his graduates work in the field of, of history. So uh, he, he helped place me uh, in a small house museum in a, in a little town outside of Portland. And I got involved in the historic preservation movement while I worked at that, uh, at that museum. And one thing led to another. I was looking around for um, a a path that would kind of further uh, my interest in preservation and uh, wound up at uh, grad school at BU at uh, Boston University. Um, And uh, from there, went to work for the National Park Service doing project review in in the uh, tax credit program. So it was a a path that, that sort of started out in pure preservation uh, you know, with a fair bit of background in kind of all aspects that, you know, that's typical in these, in the, in the graduate programs. But the, uh, you know, my, my interest really got piqued by the kind of the carrot side of the preservation movement as opposed to the stick sides, the, you know, the incentive mm-hmm. um, right. uh, uh, side of the, of the field and l- looking favorably on the work that developers were doing. And, and, you know, and it's a very complex process that they go through. And I wanted to uh, kind of be on that side of the table as opposed to on the regulatory side. It seemed to sort of appeal to my 
uh, to my sensibilities a little better. So that's that's kind of how I got the got the start in the uh, you know on the on the incentive side, and then in particular in the in the tax credit field. And at what point did you come in in the history of the the federal tax credit program? Because you're, the timeline you're describing here, were you in at least when it was in sort of its infancy, or uh, without, th- this without is a, this is a podcast without video, so uh, nobody <laughs> can see the gray hair on my head. But it's uh, but I've been in the field for a while, so um, that that path that I just described kind of started in the late uh, 1970s, okay. and uh, and uh, and my. Uh, tenure at the Park Service was uh, 1980 to 1983, so mm-hmm. uh, three, three and a half years. Um, at that point, the uh, tax incentives, uh, quote-unquote, as opposed to credits, um, existed in the uh, federal tax code as, a, as an accelerated depreciation measure, and that was passed in 1976, so just a few years before I started in the field at, at NPS, and it was really still a growing program at NPS. They were still promoting the program, which I participated in during my time there. Um, but it was, you know, it was pretty early days for the, uh, for the incentive side of the, of the field. So you see, obviously you've seen quite a bit of change in terms of the, the way that the incentives and the tax credits have come together. Uh, very much so. And I, I would say, you know, it's b- both change in the, uh, in the uh, kind of the form of the incentive in, in the federal code, um, add to that, um, and, and, and that really, you know, what I mean by that is sort of a, uh, the, the tax credits as a way of, of uh, and, and, and I think the Congress uh, designed, they understood and designed the program so that the incentives that were in the code would lead to a developer's ability to raise equity to help uh, finance a challenging project. So, uh, you know, and as time went on, in addition to the federal uh, credits, the, you know, a lot of state credits, as, as everybody knows, uh, have been put in place. And there are probably 35 plus states around the country that have uh, credit programs that, you know, are, are user friendly to a greater or lesser degree. And then I would say the third uh, major factor that I've seen is is kind of the uh, the sophistication of the field. The uh, these are these are quite complex uh, deals that are put together to to be able to bring that uh, equity into a project. And the accountants and and attorneys who work on on uh, on these deals are are uh, you know have have kind of refined the uh, the the deal structures um, and have worked with the IRS and have. Uh, uh, kind of faced a, a number of challenges along the way, but that's a, you know, that's kind of been the evolution. And and at this point, it's a, uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty well designed and and uh, and uh, smoothly operating process in terms of the the legal structure of these deals right. and uh, you know and how they help projects happen. Except when the Congress almost eliminates it. Uh, yeah, that was a uh, that that was <laughs> that wasn't a, a, so smooth. That was not so smooth, nor was it uh, very comforting. Yeah, we, you yeah. know, we were we were watching our lives uh, flash in front of our eyes, uh, kind of the for most of, of 2017. And you know, and that was again, you know, one observation I would make is that. In response to the threat of tax reform, it was kind of, you know, it had been on the horizon for some time, right. for several years, and uh, the industry, um, you know, at the really at the urging of uh, John Leith Tetro, the the uh, who was the president of um, 
National Trust Community Investment Corporation, uh, you know, put the historic tax credit coalition together kind of in anticipation of, of, a, of a real live threat occurring someday. And he really did that when it was really just, a, you know, some clouds on the, on the horizon. The, you know, one of the outcomes of the, or one of the products of, of a mature uh, industry that I've described with practitioners, um, as I just mentioned, you know, their ability to put these deals together, they're smart folks. And, and it also is a, you know, a, a decent sized industry where uh, the, the coalition that John put together uh, was able to raise money to be able to engage uh, lobbyists and and also turn to the National Trust in general to uh, to help with grassroots and grass tops lobbying efforts and it was a pretty sophisticated uh, effort that occurred last year and that's all I think a product of the you know of the growth and sophistication of the field and that you know that hasn't always been the case it's kind of right. been a gradual process over time yeah that, another that sophistication another big change there. So let's talk a little bit about what you do now. We talked a little about Park Service, the changes that you've seen, but what does your firm do? What's an average day look like for you? Well, we're you know our our focus is really pretty uh, single minded. We really we really uh, uh, focus on historic uh, tax credit certification. We're you know if you think about this field as a as sort of uh, legal and accounting and deal structuring, sort of dealing with what I would call the IRS side of the, of the equation. And on the one hand, and the certification process that, that a developer has to go through to get uh, approval from SHPOs and the National Park Service, on the other hand, we're, we're involved very heavily uh, in the latter. So um, our typical day is um, uh, meeting with uh, project architects and developers uh, drafting national register nominations uh, and uh, and uh, historic tax credit certification applications, uh, fighting fires when things go wrong. I mean, projects are very uh, fluid and dynamic things, and there are always changes. So we're we're uh, uh, dealing with those, and we've we have a um, we're kind of a you know we've always had a national practice. So we're out kind of out in the in the field. We've got several offices now that that operate kind of in in localities and regions um, you know that's sort of being out on the street going to project meetings doing site walks um, and you know and then and and really I would say the we like to think that our value on a on a project team is anticipating what issues might be in terms of a of a project meeting the the park service standards to get certified um, and uh, kind of bringing those challenges to light uh, to the to the project team, to the developer, to the architect, to the uh, to the contractor, and and planning for those things and trying to to anticipate what issues might be and and how to get how to get through that certification process. So, do you have any sense for like right now the the total number of projects that the firm is? probably engage in is it dozens is it uh it's well i would say it's a it's a it's a good question and i don't have a uh a firm answer i would say we probably have you know between um uh, you know and, and i will say we've grown to uh uh seven offices around the country now we've got 22 people ish full-time people uh, with all of those offices, we probably have at least 150, 175 
active projects. Now that doesn't mean that you know that we're we're uh, doing work on all 175 of those right, on a given day because they're they're in different stages of their of their life of the you know of the project lifespan. Uh, but we've got uh, we've got we've got a lot going on, a lot, a lot of, of projects going on. Yeah. So for someone listening who I mean, we've kind of danced around it, talked a little bit generally about what it is that you do and the services that you provide. But could you take us through a project, sort of? I mean, n- not in real time because we don't have that much time, but from beginning to end of how Macrosti would be involved yeah. in this. Yeah, we 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 like to you know our 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 ideal role in a project is to. Uh, you know, would be to be in the in the first meeting uh, of the of the developer and architect, and you know, and it may be that the the contractor would be uh, the general contractor would be involved in that first meeting as well, um, and just sort of walk through the general program that uh, that is envisioned by the project team, and and begin to um, identify where we think there uh, will be smooth sailing, where we think there might be kind of rough waters, to further that analogy, you know, things that might be challenging to get certified, identify those things. And then, uh, uh, depending upon the site, it might be a building in a, in a National Register district. It might be a building that needs to get listed on the, on the register. So that work would begin uh, for, the, for the Part 1 application or the National Register listing. It would get... Uh, started uh, pretty much immediately. That's not something that has to wait for uh, architectural plans, as uh, as the you know the second part of the application process does. Um, and then as time goes on, and um, um, those uh, the the architect is preparing drawings that that uh, uh, lay more and more detail um, on the project. We would be providing commentary. Uh, to those plans, and at, and at a point when they're uh, when they're pretty well baked in terms of the of the project and its details, and that would that would include to the level of of uh, mechanical uh, issues, um, uh, HVAC, air conditioning, heating, electrical, plumbing, all of that sort of stuff, because that you know uh, in in a typical project would come into play. At at that point, when those drawings are prepared, uh, we would. Uh, write the uh, part two application for the project that describes uh, existing condition and what the what the project uh, will entail, and present that to the to the team. And uh, when when that has uh, been reviewed, that gets submitted. We would respond to uh, SHPO and National Park Service uh, requests for information if they need clarification. Uh, so we're we're uh, filing amendments to that original application in, in almost every case, and particularly in large, complex projects. Uh, the project gets uh, goes into construction, and depending upon our relationship with the project with the developer in a given situation, uh, we may be doing uh, uh, construction supervision, construction oversight to uh, uh, try to make sure that nothing that that we're presenting to the to the uh, regulatory agencies is being uh, being violated or being uh, uh, worked against in the uh, uh, in the actual construction, and uh, and then when construction is finished, we would file the uh, uh, final uh, application, which would be a, f- a photo documentation of the finished product and uh, 
um, and some facts and figures uh, about the project. So, and in the course of that, kind of, kind of coincidentally, would be the effort on the uh, Part One application. If it's a building in a district, that's a pretty straightforward uh, application. Usually, unless there's some circumstances that would, you know, that, that make it unusual. Maybe it's its date of construction that would uh, not fit real well into the into the district. In which case, we'd have to do some. Uh, uh, some additional work, but usually that's a straightforward process. Uh, if it's a National Register nomination, uh, again, depending upon the history of the building, the building's architect, the use, um, uh, that may be a fairly straightforward or or more involved uh, effort. I will say that over time that the National Register nomination process has gotten more and more uh, demanding. I mean, we like we we joke sometimes that those are kind of like mini master's theses. The the uh, National Register nominations they can be quite demanding depending upon the the state where the building is located, and that you know they can take quite a bit of time and and research. Yeah, and the the issues surrounding the National Register could be an entire different. Uh, oh yeah, podcast recording. Yeah, absolutely. There's some people who would like to to throw it in, in different directions. Yeah, exactly. Um. So, you know, you've described what it is you do and, and the, the scope of the work that you do and all the offices you have. Of all of that in, in your long history doing this, um, do you have a favorite or most complex, craziest, most rewarding project? Sometimes they're all of the above. I don't know. Well, we are um, presently, we're, ju- we're getting toward the end of it, but we've been working for the last five years on the... Uh, renovation of Wrigley Field, the Chicago Cubs home in, uh, in Chicago. And it is a major effort uh, involving structural issues, involving uh, uh, concession stands, additional uh, restrooms, involving uh, improvement of concourses, involving uh, signage uh, throughout the ballpark. Very involved, very uh, some very difficult issues that we've gotten through with SHPO and the National Park Service, uh, and we're we're real proud of that. That's a that's a it's a cool project. It's a you know it's only one of only two of the so-called jewel box uh, ballparks left in America, along with uh, Fenway Park. Wow. Um, and uh, and it's a neat place. A lot really of site is. visits on that project. A lot Bill. of site visits and and a few games. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, you need to it, be there on opening day just to see how it all comes together. Well, and I, you know, and I did have to go to a World Series game a couple of years ago right. when they were in the series. That, right. You know, I, I, I felt that it was my duty to uh, you know to, to to really understand the ballpark. Yeah, and how that. it flows during the, how the historic spaces flow during a World Series event. Exactly. Yeah. It's critical. And, and and whether the place actually rocks physically, um, <laughs> which I can attest. It does. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Good to hear that. Yeah. Um, you also do a lot of work on the intersection of affordable housing and preservation, um, and and clearly that's something you care about. Uh, you know, here in Maryland last year, we we passed legislation that Preservation Maryland wrote that provides an additional bump in the state historic tax credit if it, the project also results in affordable housing. Um, so we definitely see the the value there. But from your perspective, I mean, obviously working on getting these projects through. Do you have any sense for what how you, how you feel the preservation community could do a better job of connecting those dots? Do we do a good job of it? Could we do better? What what do you see from your vantage point? I would say that uh, you know, kind of intuitively, um, it would seem as though these you know they should be quite uh, complementary uh, 
uh, efforts, um, you know, uh, both adaptive reuse for affordable housing and, you know, in what I would call housing preservation, uh, you know, acquisition rehab, which we're involved in a lot, um, that the, you know, that preservation goals should dovetail with, uh, uh, with affordable housing goals. And I think they do to a large extent, but uh, certainly in the areas of, um, of, uh, of energy efficiency and, and sort of green building, I think the, the, you know, there, there are definitely some, uh, some points of friction uh, between the two fields. Um, and that can be as, as simple as, uh, uh, you know, the issue of window replacements, which, you know, in my entire career, 30 plus years uh, uh, in this field, you know, in, in uh, historic rehab, windows are still the predominant issue. I mean, it's amazing. Right. It's, uh, yeah. you know, I would say certainly the, you know, the window fabrication industry has gotten a lot better at, at what they do and, and are, and are uh, making products that fit better into the uh, Park Service's standards and their view of the standards. But it's still a friction point. So, the, you know, the idea of, of replacing windows um, and what you replace them with is a, you know, it's a constant issue in the, in the uh, historic preservation world and, and even more so in, uh, in, in affordable housing and, and energy issues. Things like um, uh, insulation, uh, you know, uh, uh, additional wall insulation, um, ceiling insulation can can uh, present issues in the you know in, in uh, uh, historic tax credit certification, and you know uh, certainly uh, solar panels that that kind of thing. Those are all things that that are uh, that are being pushed very heavily by the affordable housing. Uh, industry and world and, you know, and the kind of the regulatory framework that those projects work within. And those are oftentimes, um, uh, as I say, friction points in the, in the historic preservation world. And I, you know, I, I will say just watching from the outside, the park services, uh, is certainly aware of, of those issues. They're working hard to, uh, to try to accommodate them, but it's just, it's sort of just a natural, uh, area of friction between the two fields. Yeah. And I feel like, and, and perhaps this is because I come from the preservation side, but it feels like the preservation community desperately wants to engage with the affordable housing community, but I'm not sure the affordable housing community sees preservation or historic structures as the, the perfect fit. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Although, uh, you know, the one observation I would make is that um, those projects, affordable housing projects, as, as is the case with other uses, but especially with affordable housing, those are always shoestring uh, deals uh, in terms of the financing structure and the sources of capital. And, you know, the, the developers who are active in that world are, are experts. I kind of, I jokingly refer to those developers as subsidy junkies. And I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way, but it's just that, you know, you're really just scratching around for every source of capital you can find. And the historic credit is, um, you know, in, in a lot of these projects, certainly that we're involved in because they've, you know, they're pursuing, uh, historic credits as a source of, of equity. They are, uh, you know, it, it's an important part of the financing for the, for the project. So, you know, the, um, I would say that to, to that degree, to that extent, the, uh, affordable housing, uh, industry and world is, uh, is very interested in, in the, in historic preservation, you know, in, in being able to utilize the, that, uh, the tax credits as a, as a source of capital. 
before we we kind of draw to the conclusion here, you did mention the I like the idea of subsidy junkies and not in a pejorative way. Um, but speaking of new subsidies, uh, will McCrosty be working in the opportunity zone world? Uh, we will, I I think. Um, you know that's a that's a pretty interesting field right now. There's uh, as you're the wild west of subsidies. E- exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it is uh, the great unknown at this point. And, yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's reminiscent a little bit of the um, of uh, what what our world looked like looked like right after the 1986 uh, Tax Reform Act, where mm-hmm. the you know the current structure of the historic credits, the rehab credits, were put in place, and it took a while for. Uh, practitioners and the industry to kind of figure out how to, you know, how how all the pieces fit together and how the deals needed to be structured and so forth. And I think that's we're we're very much in that sort of uh, space right now with uh, uh, with regard to, to opportunity zone. So I, you know, there's certainly um, uh, a lot of overlap in terms of where. Uh, historic projects typically occur, sure. and and the new opportunity zone. Mm-hmm. So I would expect we'll be seeing a lot of it, and um, and and we think it's a great opportunity and and something that'll really uh, you know has the potential to provide a, a great jolt to the uh, historic rehab uh, industry. So if people want to get in, engaged, perhaps they want to talk to you about opportunity zones, or they want to talk to you about uh, historic tax credits, affordable new market, whatever it might be. How do they get in touch with uh, your firm? Well, the easiest way is is our website, which is McCrosty Historic. So that's M A C R O S T I E Historic dot com. And uh, you know, there's lots of contact information for all of our offices around the country, um, and uh, phone numbers and email addresses and so forth. So that's that's probably the best single place for folks to go. So that's the easy question. Now the difficult question: <laughs> What is your favorite historic place or site? Um, I. I think that you know it's it's interesting. I'm uh, uh, I, I've been around long enough as I've described that my my view of of what is historic has evolved, and and I will confess to being a fairly recent convert to uh, uh, mid-century uh, architecture. Okay, and uh, there is a building in Chicago called the Inland Steel Building. Which is a Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill kind of ni- mid 1950s building, steel, stainless steel, and glass building that I've, you know, I probably walked past, you know, a, a dozen times, never noticed, never gave it a second thought. And uh, when when we started to focus on it, we actually had our uh, our first office in Chicago in that building, um, and I started paying attention to it. And you know, and I am now a uh, a huge fan both of the Inland Steel Building and of, uh, you know, of a lot of aspects of mid-century uh, design. It's, you know, it's something that I never really gave a, a second thought to, you know, f- even five, seven years ago. And right. it's, it's really sort of grown on me. So I think, and it's a, it's a gorgeous building. It really is. It's very nice. Well, a perfect example and a fantastic uh, talk with you. Thanks for all the good work that you're doing out there. And thanks for joining us here today on PreserveCast. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. 
PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.